This is Gulf Coast Life from WGCU. I'm John Davis. Thanks for joining us. Today marks the start of Florida's annual legislative session. Last month, Governor Ron DeSantis announced a proposed $114 billion budget he's dubbed Focus on Florida's Future. Despite the proposal being more than $4.5 billion fewer than the budget for the current spending plan, it includes a variety of tax cuts and spending to increase teachers' salaries, spending on police recruitment bonuses, updates for the state's correctional facilities, and continued funding for Everglades restoration projects. The governor's budget proposal serves as a jumping-off point for lawmakers to negotiate a final spending plan. Passing a balanced budget is the only task lawmakers are constitutionally mandated to do, but of course, many other issues will take center stage over the next 60 days on a broad range of issues, including access to health care, kids' safety on social media, voting access, firearm regulations, public school regulations, child labor laws, property insurance, and so much much more. And the session comes amid the backdrop of Governor DeSantis's Republican presidential campaign. Joining me now for a closer look is political scientist Dr. Aubrey Jewett. He's an associate professor and assistant director of the University of Central Florida's School of Politics, Security, and International Affairs. Aubrey Jewett, welcome back to Gulf Coast Life. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. And joining us from the state capitol is reporter Steve Bosquet. He's covered state government and politics for some three decades, including more than a decade as a Tallahassee bureau chief of the Tampa Bay Times. He's currently opinion editor for the Sun Sentinel. Steve Bosquet, great to reconnect. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, John. Good to be here. And to engage with us and your fellow listeners about this conversation or any of our shows, find us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. On X, formerly known as Twitter, we're at WGCU. Use the hashtag GCL. So as I mentioned, DeSantis's budget proposal is about $4.7 billion less than the current spending plan. What do you think accounts for this? State economists have warned of a projected slowdown in tax revenue over the next few years. Is this just a you know fiscally responsible tightening of the purse strings, or is there something else going on as well? And uh, Aubrey Jewett, I'll start with you. Well, I think the biggest difference is that the amount of federal dollars coming to the states, including Florida, has diminished. And over the last two or three years, the state relied very, very heavily, more heavily than usual on those federal dollars. And so now that the COVID emergency has finally declined, the budget reality is they just don't have as much federal money. So in my mind, that's probably the biggest reason that the budget is going down this year. And Steve, what have those federal dollars enabled the state to do in recent years past that maybe it's not going to be able to do going forward, like tax cuts, road projects, things like that? Uh, He's done a whole lot of things with the federal money. What comes to mind right off the bat are bonuses for law enforcement officers, raises for state employees. State employee pay has gone up under this governor, but they're still trying to catch up for years, if not decades, of woefully neglecting the well-being of state workers. And this has been a this has been a sore spot, John, between the Democrats in the legislature and Governor DeSantis, because with one hand, he takes the federal money gleefully and spreads it around on goodwill programs. But on the other hand, you know, he's constantly criticizing of the Biden administration. And you'll never hear that, you know, the federal government is where the funding's coming from. Um, <laughs> Iowa's first in the nation caucuses just six days away. To what extent do you see DeSantis's budget proposal and legislative priorities as a reflection of his presidential ambitions? I suppose there's a there's a corollary there. Here's an example. He's dumping more money into uh, fighting uh, illegal immigration 
that is not a state responsibility. That is a federal government responsibility. Uh, I'll acknowledge the federal government has been an abject failure in, in controlling uh, illegal immigration in this country under both parties' leadership, by the way. And so his budget priorities uh, are to put more money into education, a little more money into the environment. But among the things that uh, Democrats continue to clamor for that are not happening and won't happen in this state, for example, an expansion of the Medicaid program, which is basically half of it is funded by the federal government. It's partly, so to speak, free money in that it's generated by people all over the country. But the Republicans in Tallahassee are ardently opposed to expanding Medicaid. Right. I do want to get more into health care here in, in a little bit. Um, but but sticking with this whole issue of DeSantis, you know, running for president, by the time this session ends, Super Tuesday will have happened. Some 30 states will have conducted their GOP presidential primaries or caucuses. And I'm curious about how you think that context could impact the legislative session. And by that, I mean, it's no secret DeSantis is distantly trailing former President Trump in polls of likely Republican voters. But could Republican lawmakers here in Tallahassee find themselves feeling perhaps less pressure to move in such close lockstep with the governor if it looks like his campaign isn't doing that well? Well, in my view... Yes, it's possible because, you know, if you go back to three years ago when DeSantis's popularity in the state was really skyrocketing and his name appeal amongst Republicans across the country was going up and he was raising money a lot, not just from Florida, but from across the country, he just seemed unstoppable. And then when he actually won re-election by almost 20 points, that was sort of the icing on the cake. And so I think the legislative leadership and even rank and file members, I mean, a lot of them have said over the last year or two that it's just was an unprecedented level of influence from the governor's office over the legislature. And of course, sometimes they put it in a way that made them seem a little better, like it was an unprecedented level of cooperation, you know, mm-hmm. something like that, as if they were equal partners. But they really have admitted that they weren't equal partners and that they were really just doing what the governor wanted and they were trying to help the governor in his bid. So with that as the background right now, as we move forward, the luster is at least a little bit off Governor DeSantis. I've seen a couple polls that show within Florida, he's still about 50% approval, but that's that's a far cry from where he used to be. And the fact is he's just been in Trump's shadow and his campaign has not worked out nearly as well as, as they had hoped to say the least. And so I do think that state legislators probably will be a little more independent this year. Again, not not that they'll directly go against him because they are all Republican conservatives that are in the majority. But I think the legislative leadership's priorities will come out a little bit more this year than they have in the past. Even though it is an election year, when one might expect to see more of those, you know, red meat culture war issues dominate the session, from what I've seen, it kind of looks like that's going to be tamped down a little bit, at least from last year's regular session. Steve Bosquet, what's your take on that? There are going to be more culture war fights. Um, You know, there's bills to restrict the use of pronouns in the public school system. I don't think Republicans have gotten the message that uh, the public is, is very tiresome uh, about all this culture war stuff, and they want answers to things like property insurance and housing affordability and car insurance rates. Uh, we'll see if they deal with any of that. I'm not in agreement totally with uh, 
my friend Aubrey Jewett. I, I, the, mm-hmm. issue of, the issue of the willingness of the Republican legislators to stand up to DeSantis, I'd be, I'd be pleasantly surprised if, if Aubrey Jewett is right and they do stand up to him. But the system is not supposed to work the way it's been working in Tallahassee. The legislature has a responsibility to challenge the executive branch, to question their priorities and so forth. Uh, this was the norm under Rick Scott, even with a Republican legislature. It was the norm under Charlie Crist. It was the norm with when Democrats ran the legislature and Lawton Childs was governor. And so this this idea of the legislature as a lapdog giving the governor everything he wants is, is bad for democracy, uh, in my opinion, in this state. Well, let's take a look at some of the major issues to watch. Um, first, health care. Senate President Kathleen Pasadomo of Naples championing what she's dubbed a live healthy initiative. And and this is being billed as a way to increase access to health care in Florida. But there's nothing in this package of legislation that would expand Medicaid. In fact, Florida is leaving billions of federal dollars on the table by not expanding Medicaid. And we're in a state that's among the top five in the country when it comes to the number of uninsured residents. So I'm curious about what gives, how the Live Healthy initiative is aimed at increasing access to health care. Well, from what I've read about her bill, she's trying to do several things. One, she's trying to increase the number of doctors in Florida, either homegrown and and getting the ones that are trained here to stay, if they do the residency here to stay, uh, or to try to make it more attractive for doctors to come here from other states. So that's part of it is just to have more doctors And then one of the other things that I had seen was she was talking about that there's access to health care, even if people don't have insurance because they go to emergency rooms, but that she was going to try to increase the uh, she was going to try to increase the number of places that people could go besides an emergency room so that they could still get care but cut the cost. And, you know, in my view, the things that are in that bill are positive and they're, and they're pretty good things. I mean, I, I think, but it, it really is a half measure because as you pointed out, the one easier thing that they could do to vastly expand access to health insurance is to have the state expand the Medicaid program under the Affordable Care Act. And she has totally ruled that out. She's kind of said, oh, well, you know, even if we expanded that, people wouldn't wouldn't be able to get to see a doctor because we don't have enough of them and this sort of thing. But literally, there'd be hundreds of thousands of Floridians that could gain access to health insurance if we took the federal dollars (laughs) to expand Medicaid. But it doesn't seem like it's going to happen because when you have the Senate president saying it's not going to happen, it probably means it's not going to happen. Policy analysts for the legislature have predicted that by 2035, Florida will only have enough doctors to meet about 77 percent of what the projected expanded demand would be at the time. So it seems more like this is making sure that people who already have insurance won't have to wait too long to get an appointment than it is about actually expanding who can access medical care. Yeah, I think that's that's well put, uh, John. Um, this is really a, a health care workforce initiative is what this is, really. Everybody who's listening has had the experience or knows someone who has about going to a hospital emergency room and waiting seven hours to get treated. That's an indication, that's a reflection of a lack of sufficient doctors and medical personnel to treat patients. And they want to, uh, they want to make it much more easy. I think this has not been very well vetted by the legislature or by the public. They want to make it much more easy for out-of-state and out-of-country doctors to get licensed in the state of Florida as well. 
And there's more context going on here as well. We're in a place where hospitals are now mandated to ask about patients' immigration status. The legislature has injected itself into conversations between patients and their doctors concerning pregnancy, gender-affirming care. I feel like there might be a lot going on with Pasadomo's bill that isn't reflecting the reasons doctors are looking to leave Florida. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I I think if you're going to be serious about trying to increase the number of doctors, then you have to examine why you have a shortage in the first place. Why, you know, why aren't doctors coming, right? If there's a lot of people moving to the state and we're going fast, why aren't doctors coming here? Because they say, oh, you know, we could make a lot of money. We could do this and that. But many doctors don't want to come here because they feel like the rules in Florida are oppressive and, and onerous. And not only do they want to come, but there's some that are leaving or considering leaving or others who are retiring who might have stayed and worked a few more years but then just decided hey it's not worth it why do i want to go through all this aggravation i can't practice the way i want to practice so forget it yeah yeah i was hoping we could pivot to child labor laws because this is another possibly hot button issue this session that i didn't really see coming the house is advancing a proposal to roll back decades old child labor laws and prevent local governments from imposing uh, restrictions more preemption but essentially it's going to loosen rules on how many hours 16 and 17 year olds can work currently they can't work more than eight hours a day they can't work more than 30 hours a week during the school year and they can't work past 11 p.m on school nights and unless they get some exemption from a judge. This bill nixes all of that. And I'm I'm really curious if either of you have any insight into where this is coming from. Yeah, I can help with that, John. Uh, <laughs> and, and we've editorialized on this, on this issue, as others have as well. This is a priority of a right-wing think tank known as the American Legislative Exchange Council, known by the shorthand name of ALEC. It's also being pushed by, I think it's called the Foundation for Government Accountability, which is a Naples-based think tank funded by very wealthy, ultra-conservative business people, some from the Midwest. And a driving force behind the loosening of child labor laws is the the very influential hospitality industry, the hotel and restaurant industry in Tallahassee, the Florida Restaurant and Lodging Association, who had a big presence at a recent legislative hearing on on this thing. So uh, I've got a strong sense that this bill is going to pass. There's a lot of muscle behind it legislatively. It was advancing in the committee process even before the session started. Democrats and their aligned interest groups, you know, labor unions, others are going to try to try to defeat this or water this bill down. But so far, they've been they've been unsuccessful. The critics say this is going to lead to an epidemic of teenage kids holding down minimum wage jobs in dangerous occupations, working all night shifts at gas stations and convenience stores including in high crime areas. There are predictions this will lead to an increase in truancy because this bill wipes out the existing restrictions on working on school nights. So you're going to have kids working till five o'clock in the morning and then being expected to go to school three hours later. And yeah, and if I could just add quickly, I think part of the motivation is tied to the illegal immigration crackdown by the governor because there's been stories about how industries that rely on those undocumented workers are really struggling, right? And we know that the unemployment rate in Florida is pretty low already. And so basically one way to look at this is they're gonna try to replace 
those undocumented workers with 16 and 17 year old workers who are at least U.S. citizens. And, uh, you know, one other thing that struck me when I read about this, and I, I just following up with what Steve said, it's not only about the age, but it's about what occupations you could do. For instance, you would be able to have 16 and 17 year olds working in the roofing industry, which is like in the top three uh, industries for injuries and deaths in the country. Mm. And so it struck me that the, we got a legislature and a governor that they think it's too dangerous for a 16 or 17 year old to read a book that mentions sexual orientation or gender identity, but they're perfectly fine with having them up on a two-story roof where they could fall and die and where it is, the like I said, it's like a top three industry for injuries and deaths. So it's it's really mind-boggling. I wanted to stick with kids for a minute because another um, priority of Senate President Pasadomo is this deregulation of public schools. There's three bills she's supporting to deal with what she describes as just cutting red tape on issues like testing and accountability, financial requirements and personnel decisions. The list of rollbacks is pretty long. But generally speaking, I, I was surprised by this, not so much the bill itself, but the response. In recent years past, the statewide teachers union, the FEA, has been less than supportive of what Republican lawmakers propose, but they've actually supported some of this. And, and in other areas, they're taking kind of a wait and see approach. Could this be a little bright spot of bipartisanship in the session? It could be. There is bipartisan support for some of these initiatives, uh, but there's resistance to I'm thinking of the fact that, um, well, well, first of all, um, you know, w- what these bills do from a 30,000-foot view is this is the, really the unraveling of what's left of the Jeb Bush education agenda, mm-hmm. which included, uh, you know, making it easier to retain or to hold back kids who were struggling, like in the third grade, and which included a heavy reliance on standardized testing, which I think has really law- completely lo- lost its luster. If it's lost its luster in the a very conservative Republican legislature, then it's really it's really gone. But I believe Pasadomo's uh, school dereg package allows students as young as the tenth grade to take a GED exam. Uh, there's parts of this that are that have not yet uh, well understood by the public, but uh, I've attended some of the hearings on this in Tallahassee, and uh, I, I too have been struck by the level of uh, bipartisan support. There was an early fight over an idea to make school recess optional, and parents objected vigorously, and the sponsors of the bill immediately backed down and said, no, school recess will remain you know, mandatory for kids. There is a big, very vocal constituency in Florida of what are known as recess moms who believe in the importance of exercise and fresh air for kids. And and if I can just quickly add, I think that it's interesting that the private schools and voucher schools, right, they have almost no regulations at all. They're getting all this tax money. So I think to some degree, Democrats and public teachers unions are like, well, you know, if it's good enough for them to be able to just take in the money and get paid without having all these restrictions, then it ought to be good enough for us, too. And that would make the playing field at least a little more 
equal. Now, from a good public policy standpoint, I don't know that that's where we want to go because I, I, I think we ought to be having more regulations on those voucher schools, quite frankly, and require them to show that they're spending their money effectively. But that doesn't seem like it's going to happen either. So I can't blame teachers unions and Democrats for saying, well, you know, at least this would allow public schools to have a little bit more equal footing when we are trying to attract uh, students and parents and, t- and get them away from the, the voucher schools. Hey, John, if I can make one more quick point on this, uh, we didn't get to it, but but it's purely political, but it's a, it's a reality of Tallahassee, and that is both the healthcare workforce initiative we discussed and the deregulation of, of public schools are both priorities of Kathleen Pasadomo, the Senate president who is from Naples, who is in her last session as Senate president. There's a longstanding tradition in Tallahassee in both parties to sort of be very deferential to a presiding officer's priorities as they're walking out the door. And so there's little doubt in my mind that Pasadomo is going to get the lion's share of what she's seeking here. Uh, She is generally well-liked by fellow legislators. You know, she doesn't pick fights with people. She's not an ideologue on most issues. And so I think both of these issues that we've discussed uh, have a high probability of passage for the reason I just said. Yeah, well, well, turning to her counterpoint in the House, Speaker Renner, one of his priorities when it comes to protecting kids deals with the Internet, particularly social media. And he, he's kind of championing this bill that would require social media platforms to terminate existing accounts that are reasonably known to belong to kids under 16 and to you know not let kids open up new accounts. Even if this passes, enforcement seems like it could get really complicated. What is your take on these efforts? Because I'm looking at, you know, DeSantis having already banned K through 12 students from using apps like TikTok, Facebook, and and X, formerly known as Twitter, in schools. Uh, the state attorney general is involved in a federal lawsuit alleging Facebook's parent company uses manipulative features to keep minors hooked on their platforms. Is this part of a broader conservative push against social media? I would say yes, it is. The the Republican conservatives have been pushing against social media for some years now because they felt like it, like the mainstream media, was stacked against conservatives and Republicans. And so I think this is part of it. I do think that there is some legitimate concern. I, I have five kids. None of them are under 18 anymore. But I do look and see my students, you know, coming into UCF and you see some of the younger people and they do spend so much time on social media that I think it is a concern, like a legitimate policy concern, particularly for younger kids about how much they're on and what they're being exposed to. Now, whether or not it's it's up to the government to regulate that or whether or not the parents should like maybe it's not a good idea to give your eight year old a smartphone right, so they can just do things on their own. But, you know, to me, again, there's a debate. I'm not sure that with the free speech laws and, and then just the practical realities that you pointed out of trying to enforce this what exactly they can do. And of course, there'll be court battles as well to try to stop them because the media companies are not just going to sort of roll over on this. Steve, with what Aubrey just said in mind, is there bipartisan support for these kind of measures as well? Or or does this seem like a firmly uh, Republican issue? No, I think there's going to be some bipartisan support for some of this stuff. Uh, I agree with what you said at the outset, John, which is it's uh, it's it feels like it's unworkable and unenforceable to a large degree. 
And I think some people would say this is a this is a parental responsibility to regulate your kids' access to phones. But we we, we all know and we've read that uh, you know that that kids are being ordered to not use their phones during class and school. That's a that's a hard thing to enforce. But I think a lot of parents today are frustrated and have anxiety that, generally speaking, kids today are growing up much too fast. And one of the reasons they're growing up too fast is because of the easy access to pornography and other similar kind of material that you can easily find on your iPhone. So uh, we're going to see how it how it plays out. But um, this is a good time to mention, you know, that because Republicans have a supermajority in both houses of the legislature, they can pass pretty much anything they want, anytime they want. There's not much doubt that some form of what we're discussing is going to pass. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted to turn our attention to voting because there's a, a pretty important bill uh, Senator Ngoglia has sponsored that would really limit who would be eligible to vote by mail going forward. If this passes, voters in Florida would need to provide some kind of reason that they can't vote in person in order to cast a ballot by mail. Supporters say this is to help increase election security. Steve Bosquet, What's going on with this bill? I, I'm personally curious because voting by mail has long been my preferred option. This is an annual thing in Tallahassee to monkey with the elections code in partisan ways that presumably or theoretically benefit the Republicans who are in charge. This is a really terrible, uh, catastrophic idea, which has the strong opposition of election supervisors around the state. It would, in effect, after the August primary this year, it would abolish voting by mail unless you could provide a written excuse to your supervisor that is you're ill you're out of state you can't get to the polls on election day this is how it used to be before the 2000 famous recount in 2000 after the recount they modernized the elections code and again with republicans in charge by the way we became a state known as no excuse absentee voting then about a decade ago they actually literally took the word absentee out of the statute books. The word absentee doesn't really exist anymore, not in a legal sense. It's called voting by mail. Now, voting by mail has traditionally been more popular with Democratic voters, but in recent elections, Republicans have used it widely too. And I would remind everyone that Donald Trump, who has demagogued voting by mail, he voted by mail in one recent election from his home in Palm Beach County. So uh, this is really, uh, I'm glad you brought it up. It bears very, very close watching. This is the kind of issue right here that people should be contacting their legislators about. This will create havoc in the 2024 elections in Florida. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, supervisors of elections in Florida counties are against this as well. I mean, I've done stories on this in the past. Many of them just in the past year have been spending taxpayer money on software that will enable people to more easily track their vote by mail ballots. And now it's looking like most of these folks wouldn't even be able to do that if this passes. So there's a, a bit of a disconnect there. Right. One more quick point about this is yeah. this shows up in every election in analyzing the data. Republican voters, much more so than Democrats, favor in-person voting on election day. And that's the direction this bill is going in. This bill is going in a direction as to where voting was in this state 30 or 40 years ago which is you voted on one day, that one day was election day, and if you wanted to vote, you had to get in your car and drive to the polling place. That's where this bill is headed. 
Yeah. Well, in that same spirit of undoing existing statute, firearm legislation is once again going to be a hot button issue. We're going to see the bringing back of this proposal to lower the minimum age to buy a rifle in Florida from 21 to 18. And as we all know, that's something that passed during, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School mass shooting. If I remember correctly, lawmakers were actually in session when that happened. And it looks like they're just looking to unravel some of the restrictions they put in place after a a massacre. It's been introduced. I give it less than 50-50 of getting through. I mean, I don't say it's out of the question because, gosh, as Steve pointed out, there's a supermajority of Republican conservatives in the legislature. And so if they decide they weren't sufficiently pro-gun enough, maybe they do this. But I think maybe there's still going to be enough Republicans that are comfortable with what they did in the aftermath of the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and that they're going to be reluctant to go back and change it. So, again, I mean, it's certainly possible it could pass, but I I think that this is not a sure thing. Yeah, I would agree. And I would uh, suggest, John, this bears a close watching for somebody who's not in Tallahassee, but uh, is very important in this debate. And that's U.S. Senator Rick Scott. Rick Scott is up for re-election this year. Rick Scott was governor when the age was raised to 21 to purchase a rifle. You are quite right that the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas massacre happened during the 2018 legislative session. And I remember vividly there were 10, 15, 20,000 young people on the steps of the Capitol demanding sensible gun regulation, including the red flag law and other things we got. This is really a commentary on term limits. The Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting is is less than six years ago, less than six years. And uh, most people who are in Tallahassee today weren't here when the shooting happened. Additionally, Representative Joel Rudman is proposing a change in statute regarding the waiting period for firearm purchases. Essentially, if this bill passes, as I understand it, you can go to purchase a firearm, you wait the three days, they do a background check. But if the background check is not completed by the end of the three days, they'll still sell you the gun. It doesn't make sense to me, but is that the bill as you understand it? Uh, I haven't seen the details of the bill, but I I have r- r- read that I thought Governor DeSantis thought that we shouldn't have a three-day waiting period because he thought there still should be a background check, but that, that in most cases, like he, I can't remember the exact figure he said, but maybe 95% of the cases, you know, he always talks with authority. Uh, it was it, That could be done within an hour, you know, minutes, an hour, and, and that as soon as that's clear, you should be able to get your weapon. So... Unlike the other bills, uh, the other bill that was going to you know, repeal a number of those reforms that were passed after Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, I actually think this one has a, a little better than 50 percent chance of passing in some form. I, I, mean, I, I would say from a matter of public policy, I hope not, because I think there's some evidence that that three-day waiting period allows people to calm down who might just be upset and want to go buy a weapon and use it. But... We'll see. As I said, if the governor gets behind changing this, then the chances go up, even though I said I thought the legislature might stand up to him a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and a final topic here before I let you go. There's a series of bills that have been proposed that could allow more people to get coverage through citizens' property insurance designed to be the state-backed insurer of last resort. 
and of course, property insurance and premium prices, companies being able to remain solvent that offer policies in Florida. This has been this has been a crisis for a number of years now. But the Insurance Information Institute has said the average cost of home insurance has more than doubled in the last three years. It's likely to keep going up in 2024. Should property owners in Florida hold out much hope that the legislature will do much to help out their financial situation when it comes to this insurance? No. (laughs) (laughs) If you, if you want me to elaborate, no, I'd say no, no, I don't think so. They, they, um, I think what would need to be done to have a meaningful reduction in rates is the state to take on a lot more responsibility, like saying they will pay for reinsurance or they'll take over. The citizens will you know, take over as part of the hurricane or something like that, a hurricane coverage. But I don't think that they're willing to do that. And so all they're going to do is chip around the edges. They'll talk about, oh, you know, we've passed all these bills. We just have to wait and get the time to work. Well, I don't think that's going to happen, but that's what they're going to keep saying. So I don't think. Yeah, the the one thing the governor did uh, propose was suggest a cut in the uh, tax on insurance policies, and so that might save people like five percent. But if your rates have gone up over a hundred percent in the last you know couple of years, then uh, sa- saving five, I don't even think most people will even notice. Steve, are are you? I mean, I don't want to ask you to editorialize too much here, but I'm going to. <laughs> are you surprised that the legislature hasn't done more on this, given how important this is to everybody in Florida? No, their answer to every crisis is to sort of nibble around the edges. Certainly, defer to what the industry wants. That is, insurance companies. They put the insurance industry front and center, not consumers, not policyholders. The other thing is that they have exaggerated, uh, and this was uh, the subject of a, of a recent story in the Tampa Bay Times, well told, the Republicans in the legislature have exaggerated the role of litigation as a, a factor in driving up the cost of insurance. What they've also done, and the, 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 the key player in the legislature on insurance is a Republican senator who's an insurance agent, by the way, from Bradenton, Senator Jim Boyd. He has said publicly that it's important to let the past changes that the legislature has made, let them work, let them work their way through the marketplace, you know, for 18 months to two years. And those changes were passed, the most noteworthy changes, I think, passed last year. So Mm -hmm. the Democrats have some ideas. The Democrats want to create a a property insurance uh, commission statewide. They want to go back to an elected insurance commissioner who they say would be directly accountable to voters. I think that last idea is fraught with problems, but this is an issue that I think the Democrats can exploit for political advantage because this is a case of a serious festering problem in every community in Florida that hasn't been adequately addressed by the legislature. All right. Well, that is where we'll have to leave things for today. But I want to thank my guests. I've been speaking with reporter Steve Bosquet, who's long been covering Florida politics in the state legislature. He's currently the opinion editor for the Sun Sentinel. Steve Bosquet, thanks for taking the time. Thanks so much. And we've also been speaking with political scientist and director of the University of Central Florida's School of Politics, Security and International Affairs, Aubrey Jewett. Dr. Jewett, thanks for joining us as well. Thank you. Glad to be here. If you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, 
wgcu.org slash gcl or subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by Jared Gonzalez and yours truly. Our director is Richard Chinqui. For now, thanks for listening. I'm John Davis. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida. Thank you.